0: They had one scare earlier today when UFA at first decided this morning that yellow and white would not mix and that Arsenal would have to wear their traditional red, but finally UFA relented and permitted Arsenal to play in yellow shirts and blue shorts.
1: Welcome, dear listener, to episode 13 of the Football Kit Podcast. I'm Dennis from Museum of Jerseys.
2: I'm Gav, also known as the Kit Geek.
1: And I'm Les of
0: Hull City Kits.
1: In this episode, tying in with the beginning of the group stages of the various European competitions, we're going to look at some of UEFA's kit regulations, both past and present, and judge whether each bylaw is rational and useful or if it's just petty bureaucracy from the wonks in neon Switzerland.
2: With the three of us taking a closer look at UEFA's kit rules, there will always be a definitive judgment, even if there is no consensus. Rules that are justified by at least two of us will be termed nigh on to something good, whereas regulations that are deemed a lack of sufficient rationale will be branded UEFA, game or what.
0: I'm not convinced that we're three good men and true, but I do like this topic. I suppose before we look into the specific rules, we should consider whether we think UEFA are even justified in having their own take on law four to begin with, or if they should let teams do what they like as long as they meet their own association statutes. Where do you stand on this, Dennis?
1: I kind of like it in terms of the variations that it brings. Like, being rational and realistic and logical, I understand why the Premier League doesn't mandate shorts changes, and I kind of applaud that. But I like then the fact that UEFA do, and so you just see variations and mashups that you mightn't see domestically. Like I can definitely do those sleeve patches of all kinds. I think they're a complete waste. I, I know they're they're good for collectors and things like that, but they were what brought about the the sleeve free zones, which broke up the Adidas stripes and other kinds of taping. So they can definitely get them to see but then i like there's a kind of a loush quality to if you go back to the 1990s and you see Bayern Munich and Milan just having to have the opel word mark psg as well had opel at the time they were only allowed to have the opel word mark whereas in their domestic league they would have had the word mark with the opel lightning logo and just those kind of small little kind of different editions of of kits basically i i, I like i like to see things like that
2: yeah, I don't mind having the standardised rule. I think it's uh, a nice thing to have. I think if there was no ruling, you'd see some kind of the the kits, I think, of the 90s. I think of the French teams, particularly with multiple sponsors covering the shirts, you'd see a lot more of that, where I think that detracts from the main appeal of the shirt which is the look of the team. What is that team's colours, all of the traditions of European competition, the historical looks for each of the teams. I want to focus on those colours and those aspects of a kit. So I think these rulings help us do that to a quite a large degree.
0: Yeah, and I'm OK with it too. I mean, there's a certain cashier to qualifying for European competitions and a fair amount of cash. That goes with it too. So why shouldn't they have their own kit regulations? Especially when you look at a continent as diverse as Europe. I mean, you just mentioned the French kits where you'd have sponsors that were visible from the International Space Station and you'd have teams in, you know, the Scandinavian countries where they look like NASCAR drivers. They've got that many sponsors on it. So I I do feel there needed to be some centralization of the rules if you will i don't think just going by the rules of the local association cuts it and as well as somebody who collects match one shirts i, I like having more stuff to collect and when all city qualified it's for europe for the first time umbra created a shirt with what they described as an aperture back or having the free zone on the back for the numbers for for extra number legibility and that became for me what collectors would describe as a grail and it and it's one that I that I now own. I wonder if I'd feel differently if I supported a team that was regularly in way for competition because that would become, you know, very expensive. But I support Hull City and Sampdoria, two teams that are impacted by the back of shirts rules, the free zone rules because of either stripes or hoops. But I do quite like the added variety. You know, variety not just in the shape but also supplier designed or club specific typefaces on the back you know they've not gone for a homogenized league-wide characters on the back like we've, we've seen in the premier league Serie A, league and, you know we get in europe we often get to see more diversity when it comes to to typefaces on the the squad numbers and, and names so i think it's a good thing
1: So we'll kick off by bundling together the varied rules on sponsors, which don't affect the construction of a kit, but do impact what can be added. So initially, sponsors weren't allowed at all in Europe. Then they were allowed for all rounds up to the finals. Trivia fans might appreciate the fact that the first Champions League winners to have a sponsor did not have a sponsor across their chest because it was Ajax in 1995, and they had AB and row written vertically. But even then, they had they were they were limited in size. They they weren't allowed to be as big as teams could have domestically, and you could only have one. Now you can have two because you can have one in on the sleeve as well. But l- like um like Gavin said, you could have some leagues like France or Austria where teams would have loads, but they could only have one then. For Europe, And then there was a a funny rule as well where teams playing each other couldn't have the same branding across their their chest. But it's been a a kind of a dynamic thing. It's changed over time. So what what are your likes and and dislikes, Gav? So
2: I think kind of, as I mentioned, I think the thing I like about it is it gives us some standardisation. So actually, the main thing on show is the kit and the tradition of those teams. And with the history of these competitions, they're the things that, you know, you you look at, you look at Real Madrid, the history, Liverpool as well, you know, um, I mean... Liverpool changed from white shorts in the 60s to all red look to match what Real Madrid were looking like with all white. So the kit has been at the heart of these European competitions right from the early days in the 50s. Um, So that gives us a consistent look across all of the teams. So, again, we did talk about those kind of French, Austrian teams, all those sponsors, that all goes. So we have that limited look one sponsor something I also like that I want to kind of just quickly mention is sometimes there's some clever use of sponsorship over the years one example that springs to mind is when Liverpool was sponsored by Carlsberg and when they were playing in countries that didn't allow alcoholic sponsorship they used the word probably so the probably the best lager in the world the tagline for Carlsberg so they just had probably in the Carlsberg font That stood out more and I think was more effective marketing from a sponsorship point of view than if they just had standard Carlsberg. It stood out. It became, you know, a collector's item. People were talking about it. So from a sponsorship point of view, brilliant. From a club point of view, brilliant. Everyone's talking about the shirt. Everyone's talking about sponsorship. And these little things wouldn't be the. The case if we didn't have that sponsorship ruling in place so that's something that i i, I like i think there was some also that they've done some things with the fly emirates i think that probably touches what you were saying dennis about teams not having the same sponsorships i know that's been played with in the past where teams have different versions of that i think i can remember arsenal i think probably had dubai i think on one of their shirts once um i can't remember who they were playing but probably my hamburg hamburg so little playing around with that i think is uh, an effective use of the sponsorship and the space that the sponsorship is allowed within the shirt.
0: I think the no sponsors in finals rule. It certainly gave us some great-looking finals. I immediately think of Manchester United versus Barcelona in the 1991 Cup Winners' Cup. Manchester United's all-white kit just looked wonderful without a sponsor. Barcelona wouldn't have had one anywhere. And then a year after Barcelona played Sampdoria in the last European Cup final. I think perhaps Barcelona getting to so many finals in that era perhaps muddies the waters a little bit because it didn't affect them anyway. But I I think I quite like that look. Although I don't imagine sponsors liked it. And I bet in the long run that would mean the clubs wouldn't like it either. But while it lasted, I think that rule was neon to something good. The the different brands rule, I, I can't fathom the logic. For it, there's there's no real conflicts of interest as I see it. You know why two teams can't have the same sponsor, so that feels needless and bureaucratic. So I'd say UEFA for the game of what for no.
1: for that one there.
0: What about you, Dennis?
1: I I would I would agree agree with you on that. It was a bit mental, made made for good variance, but I presume it's probably because UEFA were afraid that the sponsors in question would be getting more exposure than the Champions League or Europa League competition sponsors who were paying the money directly to UEFA. That's just a the theory; could be completely wrong. The decision to allow C sponsors last season, definitely UEFA for the game or what? Well, it's still inevitable though. Again, like like Gav, I like the 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 countries that ban al- alcohol advertising, forcing it to forcing teams to change the message. And uh, kind of a uh, and now it's something good that I I like is. When Hamburg won in 83 against Juventus, they just had HSV across their shirts. Mm. Because they were sponsored by BP at the time. And I suppose they, they just, you know, wanted to have something there. So it was a nice kind of a creative thing. And similarly, then in 92-93, the first season of the Champions League, you weren't allowed to sponsors for the group stages. So for Rangers' first game, it was against Marseille. This was an article by Jay Mansfield on, on his left midfielder blog that, that I read this, that... um the Rangers players wanted long sleeves, but the set that came from Adidas, the unsponsored set that came, was only short sleeve. So, what happened with I think Mark Hateley and a couple of others? They wore domestic long sleeve shirts, but with a patch cut out, a rectangular patch cut out of, of other other shirts that weren't being used, and stitched over the McEwan's Lehuger logo. Um, and that same season, PSV who were sponsored by Phillips at the time, who were also the, the club owners, the official name Phillips SV. They actually, for the first time ever, as well as the crest, they had the T, the club name Phillips SV written above the crest. So they did have their sponsor's name on their shirts, which was sneaky. But I I, I applaud it. So I definitely have that as a name to something good.
0: Normally, you, you see sort of like grandfathering rules, don't you? Where if a club's been set up by a company, they would let it off, you know, like in uh, in Germany. Yeah, you know, a couple of teams get away with a fifty-plus-one rule because they've always been owned by companies, which is, of course, how largely football teams started, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. the workers of teams, yeah, you know, United and, and players, the team.
2: Mm. So, genuinely, mm. we're thinking nigh on something good overall with that.
0: I'd say so overall. I mean, the, yeah, there's, there's some pettiness, some bureaucracy, but but overall yeah. I, I think it's been a, a a good thing.
2: Okay, so onto a similar but not related rule that restricts the supplier's marks that appear on a kit, so the logos. Um, the current wording in Article 22 of UEFA's equipment regulations says, on shirts, one manufacturer identification not exceeding 20 square centimetres on the chest above any sponsored advertising. The collar zone, including both sides of the folded collars, must be free of manufacturer identification. What do you make of that, Dennis?
1: I Well, I think it's interesting. You've quoted the, the rule correctly, and it sounds very strict and limiting. But then a, a couple of sections down is the part about the taping and the sleeve and the shorts, and that seems to be a, a free-for-all that you can have loads of repeating logos. So I don't know why you're strict on the one hand and then, you know, not as strict on the other. My guess is that given that it mentions the colours and it goes to the trouble of legislating, it's, it's for TV interview purposes as much as anything that, you know, the frame of the head and shoulders, they only want a limited amount of logos in that area. So that again, that's my guess on that. How? How effective is it, or how neat, how much of a need is there for it? I don't know. So I, I think, you wait for the game or what?
0: Not a fan of kit brands logos appearing more than team branding. So I'd have this in domestic competitions too. I think as much as I admire stuff like the Adidas equipment range of the early nineties, and um, towards the end of that decade, you had, do you remember the Reebok shirts? I think Chile had one but had a mm-hmm. huge Reebok marker over it. Interesting kits to look back on, but I'm not fond of that look overall. I don't like, I don't like a, a supplier, you know, vendor's marks overwhelming a shirt, and certainly being far bigger than the uh, the team identity. I think it's fascinating when it extends to subtle design elements such as the jacquard weaves. And Manchester United shirt with the Old Trafford print on it, they they had to fix that because. Yeah. yeah. You know the uh, the, the Umbro wordmark was was in the seats of Old Trafford, so they had to sort of fuzz that out. And I have a, a whole City European away shirt, which was the, the domestic third, but the the European away. And you can see close up, there's this like imprint where the kitman has picked off an Umbro wordmark, and they've they've had to basically someone's had to spend the time picking off all of these umbros now one or two of them did sort of slip through i think harry Maguire might have been one of the players where on one side there was a, a rogue umbro where on the other side it had been picked off i'm, I'm sure the kit man didn't enjoy that but i think overall i think i'm neon to something good w- with this because yeah i'm just i'm just not fond uh, of supplier branding mostly more prominent than, than team branding all right you gav
2: yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I think everything you said, I completely agree with and it's completely valid points. But the only that's kind of given overall you know, a, a different view is that sometimes I think, does this give us limited in creative design? So, you know, going back to when Nike and Adidas moved the logos up higher, that was something new. Completely, for, you know, as Dennis, as you said, for TV. So when they were on the camera, you could see the logo up high. But it was something different in design. And are we limiting kit designers? And I know we're only talking about the logo, but are we just limiting them to go? Well, you can only put the lo- you know logo here or here, and it's got to be this side. And something that spreads right. And you kind of mentioned it, Les, with the Reebok kits. So those kit, and I think Marseille, that although they may have been in the second division at the time, but Marseille had the big, the like Reebok badge across the top. Now, yeah, it's the logo. It's huge. But it's something different in design. It's something you know new to look at. So while overall, yeah I agree it's probably not a great thing so you know you something good you know however we've just worded that. I, I wonder if our, we're restricting kit designers by giving them these you know, would we see something new that we haven't even thought of before? you know, by freeing up that space so they can have a little bit more creativity around the logo.
1: It's it's worth noting that Russia had that Reebok design in the USA 94 qualifiers, which were under the authority of UEFA. And Chile still had that design four years later. And for the World Cup itself, the two prongs, we'll say, coming out of the Reebok logo were gone. So it was just two kind of triangles, which... Yeah. Still pointed to the Reebok logo, but for the purposes of meeting the rules, wasn't the Reebok logo. So FIFA were more strict than UEFA at that time.
0: Just reminded then of moving sports slightly, but Nike's attempt to stop Adidas having the three stripes on the sleeves of Olympic garments. And for a while it it worked, didn't it? Because, Because Adidas were told you can't have three stripes on the sleeves, but they simply got away with it. By having the number three, but split in in certain places, repeating down the arm. So from mm-hmm. afar, the effect was it still showed the 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 Adidas three stripes anyway. I guess at that point, Nike just thought, "Oh, screw it. They're going to do it anyway. We, we, mm-hmm. They'll find a way." And and even certainly with with UEFA, the you know the 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 striping of the arms the... They look, look at that as more of an ornamental thing rather than a logo. But you see three stripes and, you know, there's a yeah. certain company yeah. you think about immediately. Although that might be O'Neill's in your case, <laughs> uh, Dennis, yeah, since, they, yeah. since they've got the right to do that in Ireland. But generally, you, you see three stripes on shoulders and you you think of Adidas. Just, I just thought that was interesting, how, yeah. how this has played out in in other sports domains as well. And, you know, obviously your wafer must have been looking at that and, and, and had to keep that in mind when they've, when they've made their own rulings.
2: Yeah. I are an interesting one with that because they don't, they don't have the free stripes domestically, but they, do in Europe. Is that right?
1: Like? That was the case for a while. The first, the first year with Adidas, they had it and there was uproar from the fans. So then the, the compromise for about ten years was that they'd have it in Europe and not domestically. And then I think around twenty ten, when the global crash hit and they needed a bit more money, <laughs> I think Adidas were in a stronger bargaining position. So for the last decade or so, they've been um very much tree striped on the shirt. The uh,
0: spirit of Johan Cruyff lives on in yeah um, yeah, yeah. In, in Amsterdam
1: exactly yeah. So moving on
0: to numbers then, so there's two parts to this. There's the design of the typeface used for the numbers and player names. And then you've got the effect that the number free zone has on shirts, if it's got stripes, hoops, bands, quarters or checkers. So I'm going to get a little bit uh, technical with some of UEFA's equipment regulations here. So for some context, here's what Article 10 says. It says a number must be centred on the back of each shirt. Only whole numbers may be used, which retrospectively outlaws uh, Ivano Zamorano's 1 plus 8 workaround. No number higher than 99 may be used, and the number 1 may only be used by a goalkeeper. Numbers must be of a single colour that contrasts with the number zone, in accordance with Article 54. Numbers must be clearly legible from at least 50 metres away, The stroke width of each digit must be two to five centimetres and the digits themselves must be 25 to 35 centimetres high on men's shirts. Interestingly, women's shirts have a little bit of a variance, don't know why that is. Numbers may contain a team's emblem or part thereof, no more than five centimetres in the bottom of each digit, but must be free of manufacturer identification, sponsor advertising or decorative elements. There is something you might not have considered numbers may contain breathing holes or lines of up to two millimeters wide and may be divided up into four parts providing the divisions do not exceed two millimeters crazy and is this is from article 7 about structure This is about the number free zone the number zone is based on a two digit number and must extend two centimeters above the highest point three centimetres below the lowest point of the two digits, horizontally three centimetres from the left edge to the left-hand digit, and three centimetres from the right edge of the right-hand digit. The number zone must be free of any team, manufacturer, or other identification advertising. About colours and patterns, it says, the dominant colour, or colours in the case of hoops, banded, striped, or checked items, must be equally visible on the back and front of each item or plain attire, excluding the number zone on the back of the shirts. The colours used to create a hooped, banded, striped or check shirt on the front must be clearly visible on the back of the playing attire in the same pattern, e.g. stripes, Not if not used, uh, is not used on the back of the playing shirt. So a few years ago, Adidas said that they were dropping the plain backs on, on striped shirts and and that was a decision that seemed to be universally well received and that evidently seems to be a response to this article where they're saying that they're not asking for plain backs, just a free zone around the number, they still want to see the, 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 the pattern. I found the single colour number element a little bit fascinating because there was a time when Premier League clubs would simply use the Premier League numbers but sans the, the the premier league logo for european games but that sort of ended when this rule came in because it has a contrast color key line on the number so it wasn't therefore deemed one color that i think is a good thing because it encourages suppliers to come up with typography just for use in your for competition and i sort of like that the variance that that's created and the creativity that you get there so certainly i'm neon to something their camp there. What about you, Dennis? What are your What's
1: your thoughts? There was a period in the early noughties where they definitely went too far. They had a rule that said any striped or hoop shirt had to have the number three zone. So Barcelona, Milan, Inter, all of whom had sets of dark stripes had to have this box where there was no need for it because with two, two dark stripe colours you're going to be having a light number anyway. So they relaxed that and Now they're more clear about you have to have the free zone if the two colours contrast. And I, as someone who works as a sports journalist, I definitely see the need for having the number on a solid background if if there's a possibility of confusion. I don't see the need for the whole back of the shirt being one colour. I think that's laziness on the part of the manufacturers, but I can definitely understand. And... It's clearly laid out. UEFA don't don't say you have to have a playing back either. They say three centimeters either side, which is fair enough because you look at games from the seventies and Newcastle had had that kind of border. You know, you see it in um, Gavin Hague's excellent new book that that's what happened back then. It's not a new thing. It's it's um you know sometimes on social media you see people getting tied up in knots about things that they think are new, which actually are not new. But that's a totally Totally different story. The You can't have a manufacturer's logo on the, on the numbers, and that's something that goes back ages. That Man United, I, I think they wore their away kit in, in that run to the final in 1990, 1991, and the away kit had the Adidas branded numbers, whereas the home kit had the, the classic you know, style that, that you'd often see on, on Umbro kits back then. um, And so... I think for the game where the a- awake it was born someone literally scribbled over the Adidas negative space in the number with a, a marker just to to um obscure it. I, I think it's good. I think I, I, I would have it you now it's something good in terms of just laying down what you can and can't do, but then you wait for the game or what, in terms of the manufacturers maybe just taking the easy the easy option or the, the lazy option. Then you have the numbers themselves which is a, a, a fetish of mine i suppose it used to be the rule that a particular number at a club couldn't be worn by more than one player in europe in a season so in in 2010-11 to give an example liverpool sold for tarras to chelsea his number nine became free andy carroll joined and he wore that in the premier league and the fa cup but for europe then he had to wear number 29 just a, a quirk they, they got rid of the rule a few years ago and it, it probably makes sense to get rid of it but it was you know like like with the kits it it just kind of was a bit interesting having something different and then the the first couple of years where squad numbers were low in europe they were a bit stricter than the premier league or syria It's the same as in la liga basically you're 25 man squad had to be numbered 1 to 25 but the younger players who were eligible to be on the B list had to have higher numbers then so Phil Neville were number 12 for Man United in 96-97 but in the Champions League he wore number 28 because numbers 26 and 27 had to be kept free for mid-season signings so just for the quirkiness of that I think that's nigh into something good as well
2: Yeah, I really like that rule I think that was something that should be brought back and for all competitions you assign a a squad number at the start of the season and then if someone comes in in the January transfer window they have a completely new number and that number is for all competitions again squad numbers is something I quite like so if I see these kind of inconsistencies where it used it kind of It puts me on edge and, you know, reading and preparing for this. I saw a lot of the examples of that and it's just it didn't feel right. Carol wearing 29 and and that and some of these, particularly the Manchester United uh, team in the 90s, when you see the different numbers worn, make for fantastic match worn collector's items. And the kit lovers would absolutely love that. And the completionists, I'm sure, really love it. But I think if we had that rule back where you have one number for the whole season, I just think that gives a level of consistency, so I really like that rule. Another thing that I quite found interesting was the single colour rule. So having one colour for a name set, name and number, does that limit? Again, going back to the design, does that limit the design? Is you know, could we look at a different colour for the name against the number? Um, I don't know if it would work, but you know, it, it just gives us something different to talk about with kids. Again, I, I'm not sure if it works. I've got a feeling it may have been used in NFL in previous where you'd have black names and different colour numbers. I've got a feeling it might have been, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But does it give us something different? I, I don't know. Um, but having just the one colour, we will never see that. So, you know, overall, on something good here. Uh completely think the rule is, has evolved well to the place where we are now, but with a few little quirks along the way.
0: I know with whole City, I don't buy that white numbers on a black and amber shirt aren't sufficiently legible. But nonetheless, I'm I'm not opposed to the free zone in principle. I can I can understand the rationale behind it. And it certainly works with Sampdoria because you can see why a white number over white, red and black banding isn't that easy to read, even though that's permitted in Serie a, So I'm OK with that. I would definitely say I'm more neon to something good than you were for the game or what with with that one, I think.
1: And uh, Sam, going back, would say twenty or thirty years, they would have had the blue space for the number in Syria, wouldn't they?
0: Yeah, there was some criticism last season that they they had a space for the number, but it was pointed out that they was replicating the look from the the only ever Scudetto season. Yeah, yeah. Because that that season had a had a free zone on the back. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, again, it's that thing of. People think this is something confounded and new when yeah. actually it's it's got a got a, a basis in history.
1: Yeah. Well, throwing throwing back to something takes us on to the next topic because when UEFA competitions began in the nineteen fifties the the rule was similar to when the football league began in the eighteen eighties that the the guests got to wear their primary kit and the home team changing. I suppose basically back in the fifties communications wouldn't have been good, you're drawn against a team in, you know, deepest, darkest Eastern Europe, you don't know what colours they wear, so it's easier for them to to change at home and for you to change at home when they come. Um, and they tried bringing it back in the early 90s. I remember Arsenal in the European Cup in 91-92, they changed at home to Austria, Vienna and Benfica and the, the other teams changed and Arsenal were their home kit for, for the away games. But it was never applied very consistently and it, it was like when Arsenal got to the Cup Winners Cup final in 94, both the home teams changed when they played Torino and then against Paris Saint-Germain in the next round the away teams changed so it, it, it didn't last too long and then another kind of a, a European thing that that you'd, you'd associate with the a couple of decades ago was both teams changing for a final. So it happened like like Les said, Man United and Barcelona in ninety one Coppinger's Cup final. It happened Barcelona two years previously against Sampdoria in the eighty nine Coppinger's Cup final, and then three years later in ninety two against Sampdoria again in the last European Cup final, uh, Ajax and Milan. I think Real Madrid and Valencia in two thousand was the last time it happened in the Champions League final, and Galatasaray and Arsenal in that year's UEFA Cup final as well. So what are your thoughts on on that, Gav?
2: I really like this idea uh, especially in finals I think if you get to a final and one team has to change both teams change it keeps the neutrality most of the times the finals are in neutral stadiums or you know even if they're not in a neutral stadium it will be classed as neutral so let's you know embrace that have you know have both teams in change kits that you know the, the two games you mentioned there um the Barcelona Man United and the Barcelona Sampdoria finals they're real standout finals for me watching football as a kid. Because a lot of the time, because of the kits, you know, as you've already mentioned, that White Man United kit, but also the Barcelona in the blue in that game. You know, there was such a a great kit matchup. And then the final Wembley, Sampdoria, Barcelona, that final. Again, those kits stand out, even though, you know... Even the fact that Barcelona then put their home shirts on with the orange shorts and socks to lift the trophy, that stands out because of um, the teams wearing their change kits at the finals. So I would definitely love to see this back. I think it gives us more classical looks. I think, and standout looks for finals, you know, and I was going back through the last few finals and it probably wouldn't have happened. Maybe Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid would have been one um, in recent years, but there hasn't really been a clash over kind of the recent years where we could have seen that. I think Real Madrid, Juventus may have been one that we could have seen it. But, you know, I just think that's something magical about those European nights is that kind of both teams and change kits. So I would love to see kind of this brought back i wasn't aware of the uh, the home team changing in the 90s so something like that as well i know we have seen elements of that in recent years for one reason or another but even that you know could that be considered again as something different uh it also gives fans the opportunity to see change kits at home you know they don't often it's not something you often see um i'm thinking particularly of arsenal you know their kits very popular you know social media they're very you know high focused in terms of the way that they market their kits this gives them another opportunity to you know wear those kits at home which would never normally happen so yeah all for this one an eye on something good for me
0: certainly don't like teams wearing change kits at home domestically it really irritates me in Syria where it seems to happen a lot and short arrival blotted his Kit copybook for me when he had all City where the blackout change kit at home last season to sort of break a barren run. It was a, you know, trying to change the look of the team thing. But I'm really not against it in Europe. And I can't point to many examples, but I certainly remember Arsenal playing in Navy when they played Racing Club de lons at Wembley um, in 99. That one stands out. Uh, PSV War. Blew at home to Milan in 93. Curiously, they wore their red and white striped shirts in the return game at the San Siro. That somehow wasn't considered a clash. Yeah, overall, I I like the sort of gentlemanly nature of this in European competition. It's a sort of mi casa, a two casa approach, isn't it? Both teams... And certainly, both teams change into sort of clashes in the finals. Yeah, it follows the old FA Cup method, and so I like that. So I think the yeah, the instances that stand out for me, Dennis, you've already mentioned it: Barcelona against Sampdoria, Barcelona against PSG again in the ninety seven Cup Winners' Cup final, and uh, yeah, you've also mentioned it, Dennis: uh, Arsenal against Galatasaray. There'd probably been more instances. Had Milan not have preempted the need, but they because they would elect to wear the white kit because they considered it lucky in Europe. So I wonder how much more that might have happened had Milan not have reached so many finals. Because you know they did that in nineteen ninety against Benfica, they did it against Liverpool in two thousand five and two thousand and seven. So yeah, I think I'm knee on to something good here too. What about you, Dennis?
1: Yeah, I I I would say at the outset, yeah, knee into something good. Reverting to the, the rule about the home team changing was, was nice and quaint, but doomed. So, you know, a pity, but we'll get over that. People on social media get very angry when both teams change. Um, But like I've said, at a neutral venue, it, it's it's a logical thing to happen, I think. And again, it's not anything new. It, you know, it, it, it happened in FA Cup finals and semi-finals happened in big European finals. What I don't like is, it's happened a few times in recent years, it's happened three times to Arsenal, and I think Atletico Madrid had to do it against Benfica, is when the the away team, their home and away kit both clash with the home team, and so the, the solution is for the home team to change, rather than the away team having to come up with a third kit. You know, and it. It's not as if it's not as if it's a problem that arises on the night. Like you, you wait for produce these these very detailed documents for each round of fixtures, saying which kits will be worn, saying which bibs the subs will be wearing. So it it again, it just seems um it just seems a bit lazy. I think it's a a failing failing of the 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 rules.
2: So some teams have decided to have a, a distinct home kit for European games, different from what they play their league games in. Dennis, any notable
1: examples of this for you? Uh, well, I, I think th- there's a standard one, definitely. Man United, when they won in, in '99, wearing a special European kit, um, complete with, with white socks as first choice. And that was a tradition that they kept up to that because Alex Ferguson believed that it, it was better for visibility under floodlights. And I I do wonder if, if the decision to to launch that European kit in '97 was taken knowing that the new home kit coming the following year had all these Umbro logos down the sleeves and wouldn't be allowed in Europe because Peter Schmeichel in, in that final had what was effectively the domestic goalkeeper top, but with the taping removed. And it, it's it's something I like. Barcelona did it in nineteen ninety four as well because they wouldn't be allowed to have all the Kappa logos down the side, so that especially European, that was the first one I noted. And then it became popular to do in the 90s. And then then there was a craze for teams like Marseille and Bayern and couple of others to wear what was their third kit to wear as, as a home kit in Europe. Bayern used to only do it in the group stages and then revert to their, their proper home kit later on but these, these are the biggest games of the season really you know and you should be wearing your, your home kit uh, I, I feel uh, at home when it's the rule that the away team changes and the, the, main, the main team doing it nowadays I think are Borussia Dortmund who have no real need for a third kit because They've hardly a need for an away kit in, in Germany and Real. Are one of the few teams that they'd actually have to change against in Europe. So their third kit is basically the European home kit. And often it has more black on it. And then they'd have the domestic home kit listed as their European third. So a few years ago, they played PSG, who and their navy kit caused a clash in UEFA's eyes with the yellow, with black sleeves, European kit. So they ended up wearing the the domestic yellow kit in PSV in Europe because it was their inverted commas third kit, so I, I kind of like that. You know when it's when when you don't have to have a third kit, you might as well have it just a European home kit. It, I, I I like I like that a team having two sets of kit in in largely the same colours. It just provides nice nice variation. So I I would have that as nice to something good. Les, think of.
0: Of Lazio, who had a solid sky blue home shirt with black trim domestically in 99 2000, but they used the striped blue and white shirt oh, in Europe. Yeah. I wondered if they'd done so if the free zone rule had been in place back then, but it wasn't, so they could have black numbers on the on the blue and white stripes. That's fascinating. And they also advertised a different brand in European games. They uh, said yes to Del Monte. Uh-huh. Who, uh, their European operation was run by the regular sponsor Kirio at that point. It's a different company now. It's it's changed hands, and I think the most prominent use of that is when they beat Manchester United in the European Super Cup in that stripe kit. Have you got a nomination,
2: Gav? Yeah, there's a couple of examples here. And for me now, it feels like it's very much a commercial exercise. So before, I think it was, you know, done to abide by some of the rules. So, you know, we talked about the Manchester United thing and, you know, maybe some of the Lazio stuff there. But, you know, I I think of real recent examples, Barcelona European kit last year was one of the best home kit designs by Nike that I think they produced for Barcelona, but it was just for European competitions. The domestic one was the one that was shaped a bit like the crest uh, across the badge, but the uh, European has was kind of a, a vibrant take on the stripes. And I really like that. And I think given the campaign that the team had last year, the kit is probably not seen as a, a great kit. But I think to look at, it was something really different and something I really liked the look of on the pitch. Another example. PSG. So in the 1819 season, they decided to use um, black away kit as their home kit in European. So PSG, one of the most traditional clubs in terms of you show a colour, it could be in any form. So like when I do my kit grids, a basic square that's navy blue with a red and white central stripe, people will know that's PSG. But they chose to use black. As their home kit for that season and funnily enough that was the first kit that had the nike jumpman jordan logo on which was used for the um champions league the global champions league reaching all of those billions of people watching across the globe rather than their standard traditional home kit and so i really don't like the way that they kind of done that and yeah, not a good thing for me
1: it's probably easy to forget given that they did about seven Maradona kits launched after that, but last season Napoli had their home away third domestically and then they had European versions of each which were exactly the same but just with gold trim, but they didn't have special socks for those kits. I think um, Jay from Design Football pointed out so it just jarred a bit.
0: So is it a little bit of surprise then that Genuinely, we're coming out in favour of most of the things. Yeah, the yeah. For, no, not not universally, but by and large, we think there's been rationale for uh, the rulings and the the articles that they've they've come up
1: with. Yeah, we're um we're not as revolutionary as we thought we were.
2: It's nice to see that they've evolved. The rules have evolved. They haven't kind of. Been stuck in the uh, you know, you know, 20 years and haven't changed, they kind of adapted and have changed and have taken consideration. Particularly, I think when you look about the number spaces uh, and the interpretation of that, because I think the average uh, shirt fan, like we've been talking about, would assume that that means plain backs when it doesn't. So, I think that's a, a good piece to take away from the discussion as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Spoiler!
0: It's been a while since we've considered a classic mashup and quite frankly, I've missed that music. So since we haven't done one since Gav joined the podcast, he gets to nominate a mashup. What tickles your fancy, Gav?
2: Okay, so I want to bring Manchester United's game at Barcelona in the 1994-95 season. As we've been talking about European competitions, let's keep it on brand for the for the pod. Um, So I thought I would uh, put this one into the mix. So it was November 1994. uh, Group A of the Champions League and Manchester United visited Barcelona. Man United wore that night their very famous black umbro kit. um, And it was the only appearance of this kit within the Champions League. Now, straight away, everyone can picture that kit the um, yellow sponsor, the blue detailing, yellow and blue detailing. It is a classic kit that everyone knows, but this one was slightly different. So why was it different? There was a few things linked to some of the points that we were talking about earlier. Um, So first of all, the sponsor was just Sharp. And so the view cam that we saw in the domestic um, Premier League game and obviously cup games was dropped just to um, have Sharp used there. Also, this, and a little bit more subtle here, was the removal of the Umbro logos within the whole kit. So the shirt had a shadow pattern formed of the Umbro logos, almost forming stripes within the shirt. They were removed. The cuffs of the shirt um, had the Umbro logo within the blue um, cuff. That's removed, so just had a plain blue cuff to the um, shirt. The shorts had a blue cuff domestically, but in this game were just plain black shorts. So we had a plain black shirt with blue trim cuffs and plain black shorts. And the final part of the mashup was that the socks weren't, uh, the standard socks weren't used. So the socks that we used domestically had yellow and uh, blue Umbro detailing on the sock cuff. These ones were the home socks. So had the red and white detailing of the Umbro logo. An interesting fact with the game is that the goalkeeper shirt used here wasn't subject to the similar ruling. So it did have the sponsor changed. So the view cameras removed. It was just sharp. But that was uh, one of the 90s classic uh, shirts. So it was a white shirt with yellow and blue flashes over the shirt. Those flashes form the Umbro logo. That remained. So that was uh, kept. Uh, and used in the game, so that is my entry, for the mashup kit. Comments, gents?
1: Yeah, it's 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 a real curiosity. Like the the socks, the socks were were slightly modified, weren't they? In that you know, the Umbro sock design at the time had a lot of diamond uh, motifs. So the ones in Europe were simpler, and they only had a couple of diamonds either side so maybe it was just the trouble of getting two sets two black sets made one with red and white and one with blue and yellow but it did look it, it made an already weird looking kit look that little bit weirder um it it's it, it just shows this was like how Byzantine the regulations were and how umbra mustn't have been aware of how strict they were when they were coming up with this was at the time a revolutionary black kit because it was the first first black kit in English club football. It was the second in, in British club football because St. Mirren had had one a couple of years beforehand. But, you know, it, it, it was designed and launched to shock people at the time. You know, it really it came a year after green referees kits had come in. So it was, it was the first time there was a chance to do this. And obviously United were the big draw as champions. But... You know, even in um in ninety three ninety four, they didn't get to wear it in Europe. Um, I think maybe referees might have still have had black kits in Europe that season because it was the, the green and yellow worn, the the third kit was worn. So it, it it's just it's just interesting to see how how they had to kind of modify it to to fit in with the the strict rules. I'm glad it happened and that you know it, it stands as this kind of curiosity. I won't say monstrosity, I'll say curiosity, but. Well, maybe the fact they lost 4-0 does kind of put a, a bit of a shadow over it but like you said how was the goalkeeper kid allowed when you know they were going through this away with a magnifying glass and saying take the umbro logos off the end of the sleeves <laughs> oh keeper yeah you're grand you're grand sorry it's gary <laughs> walsh he's playing a of michael
0: that, that must simply be it i mean it was so much change On the outfield players' kit, that uh, you know, it must have been past midnight when they looked at the keeper and yeah, whatever.
1: Yeah, it would have just felt to have been a plain white shirt otherwise. And there you have it for episode 13 of the Football Kit podcast. Hope it won't be an unlucky one for us or you, the listener. Thanks as ever for tuning in, and thanks to my colleagues Les and Gavin, and we hope to be back very soon.